last week, this week, and next week, we want to preach on walking in freedom. But Darren spoke brilliantly last week about us walking in, um, what am I looking at? Us walking free from our past hurts. And it is so easy for us, as Karen said last week, to justify and rationalize why we should continue to hold these hurts and carry them with us, but they become a baggage to us. And I trust that if that is a reality for you, that last week there was something of a breakthrough, that even if it didn't happen last week, don't in your mind kind of think, well, last week was the freedom from hurts week, so I missed it. I'm going to carry my hurts now with me until the next time they do a series of being free from hurts. When God has called us to walk in freedom, and that includes this area, and if you need help um, releasing people through forgiveness or working through past um, abuse, whether it be sexual abuse or physical um, being physically violated or anything like that, please come and speak to one of the leaders. It's our desire and our heart to see you walk in freedom. I actually had a lady come to me after the meeting, one of the leaders, and she said she had been through some sexual abuse when she was a young girl. And if there's anybody that needs help in that area, won't they please come and speak to me so that I can connect you with this lady who I know will consider an incredible joy to help you walk into the freedom that you've walked into as well. Okay, so you're not alone in this thing. So today we're going to speak about financial freedom, and next week I'm going to speak about freedom from false religions and the occult and things like that. And uh, I enjoy speaking about money. It's a little bit like talking to your kids about sex. It's one of those things that can be a little bit awkward, especially if you're embarrassed. If you're embarrassed about it, it gets worse. Hey, you start to speak to your kids about sex and you start to blush, they know they've got the upper hand, and then you're done. So you've got to be able to talk about it with, uh, with absolute calmness. And the reason why you've got to be able to talk about it that way is because you know it's good for them that you're having this conversation. And no matter how many times they say, Dad, I know this, I know this, you don't need to tell me. Please stop saying it. Stop talking. You continue to talk in a calm way so that they can get to know the truth about the subject. And so even if you shout to me this morning, Rob, we know about giving. Don't have to talk to us about it anymore. I'm going to keep speaking calmly. Well, I don't know about the calmly part, but I'm going to keep speaking about this. Because I do believe God wants us to live in freedom in our finances. And we're going to do this a little bit differently. I'm going to start by giving you guys a little bit of feedback on the church finances and how they've come to this point in the year. Some of you think this is the most boring thing in the world. So for the next few minutes, you can rest your eyes and you can lean back if you want to. Some of you think this is amazing. And the reason we do it is we want to be accountable to you as the church for what we do with the finances and how we use the finances or how we administrate them. So I'm going to take five to seven minutes to give you a kind of report back. So if you can just follow me, please. Let's go to the next one. Okay, so this is from September to May. Our year actually runs all the way through to August. So not included in the year is June, July, August. And there's a reason for that. I want to chat to you about that as well. So go on. Go on. So this is our, um, our income over the last um, the whole however many years. You can't read the numbers on the slide. That's, that's average monthly income. And part of the reason is, and if you want to know the numbers, I promise you I'm more than happy to tell you. You can come and speak to me. The, that, uh, that line that is above our, that above the highest point there is around about, it's around about 450,000 dirham a month that we receive in tithes and offerings. We just are being careful not to publish stuff with the current climate that we have. And so, honestly, if you want to speak to me about any of the specific numbers, you're welcome to come talk to me, and I'll happily talk you through with those. But we want to show you in principle what's going on in We've seen this wonderful increase from our average income last year, um, up by 18%. Part of the reason, though, is because June, July, and August are not in our numbers, and they have not been our most famous numbers that you will see um, as we go forward. But still, um, we, 
we really are incredibly grateful to God for that. How do we administrate our money? Well, go to the next few slides. So that basket there, it's almost literally this one, how's that, eh? There we go. So you guys come each week and you put your, your tithes and offerings, as I do as well, into this basket like this. That money is then, if it's not done, it's chronically, sorry, it's counted by two people that are chosen because they are faithful and full of faith with their finances as well. And those two people then would call a register that the next, during this next week, that register then goes up to, next slide please, goes up to our staff with the money box. They then recount the money, check it to the chief to make sure that no money has gone missing. And they're different people. So the people that count on a Friday are not the people that count on the week. And uh, the, the, the leaders that make the decision about money are not a part of that at all. That money then is then banked or put into petty cash um, and is recorded on a, an accounting package. So we obviously have got a record of everything that comes in. And we're able to check from what's recorded to the accounts chief, to the bank and deposits it, or to what's received in the petty cash. And then we make decisions. The, the staff load the payments, and we make decisions to whether they should be released or not. Either one of us is an elder or Matt is a manager in the office based on a decision grid. And that just means that, say, for example, if it's under 1,000, Durham, then an elder can make a decision on his own. If it's between 1,000 and 5,000, there have to be two elders. If it's over 5,000, there has to be three elders or whatever it is. And so that guides us. In addition, our budget will guide us because we spend us with it. So we set the budget by taking our numbers of what we, the income has been. We project what it will be. And then we divide it up into that pie like that. And uh, that pie, we said, this is how much we want to sow into apostolic. This is how much we want to give into the poor. This is how much we want to use for salaries, this is how much we use for ministry or admin, and um, each of those areas then guides us as we move forward. Um, the only area that we get external input into is our salaries. So the elders set the salaries for the staff, but the elder salaries are set by um, guys outside of the life of the church. And so we are not somebody in the life of the church has said to us, we've chosen these two people, Dave Wallen and Rigby Wallace. We haven't had much contact with them because we actually haven't had a, a, an elders increase in three years now. And the reason I mention this is because we take stewarding these finances seriously. This is not, for us, this is, this is we treat it as if it's our money in the sense that we treat it like, I hope you treat your money seriously, you don't just kind of squander it, and we steward it well, but we know that this is God's money, and we're going to give an account for everything that comes in. And so we have the responsibility to, to deal with it, but we want to deal with it as wisely as possible. And then what happens is um, each month um, we do a review. Go to the next slide, please. We, um, myself and the accountant, we've got an amazing accountant now called Isabel Fistenberg. And me and Isabel will go through the bank recons, we'll go through the provision schedules, the cash flow forecast, all those sorts of things so we can make sure that we've got sufficient to um, meet our responsibilities as a church. Um, each quarter we'll have a report back to the elders so they can exactly what's going on and once a year we give a report back to you and we have these finances audited as well and uh, that's this process I hope lets you know that what as you sow your money and it isn't a case of us only being faithful and, and having integrity we want to be above reproach when it comes to this as you guys know that this is a process and if you ever see it operating differently to this then you should come to think of I, most of the time, if, if somebody were to come to me and say, here is some money or something, I would say, can you put it into the offering basket? Only time I wouldn't is if they've asked me to give it to somebody specifically, and I'm able to go give it to them immediately. Go to the next slide, please. That's how we receive our money, so where do we spend the money? This is a 
you'll see there that that compared to prior year, only the one real shift there, you see the savings has gone to minus 3%, sorry, minus 5% to 3%. Minus 5% saving means that we spend more than we took in in that year, obviously, and uh, not the greatest situation, but we have been saving in previous years, so if we are short, we can in that year go into the savings and, and cover some of our obligations. This year, we've been able to actually increase our savings. If we set aside money each month to cover our future expenditure, we don't want to get to the situation where the rental check for this warehouse suddenly needs to be cashed, and we've got to come to you and say, hey, man, <laughs> we're going to take a special offering today because we're going to cover the rental check. We want to steward it well so we get to that place. The money's there to take care of it. And um, you'll just go back again. So you'll see that over the last few years, we've given 32 and 31% of our income away, which is something that I am, I'll show you in a minute where we, what we sow that money into. But I think sowing out of the church is one of the great calls and privileges upon us as a church, that actually God gives us more than we need, and so we're able to sow out. And so 30% of every, um, of all the money that comes in gets sown out either to ministry to the poor or in apostolic work to take the gospel into other nations. And... Uh, only other thing there is our, our venue costs have come down because we're in here and we lost um, the Silicon Oasis desk school and then the hotel halfway through last year, this year. And so that money that we weren't spending on there, we haven't had to spend there as well. So the next one, that uh, on the on your right-hand side is our goals. And so we, we again plan how we're going to spend what comes in. And that's our objective is to, to spend it this way. The biggest number there is obviously staff costs. When you look at a, a non-government organization and you see a, a big staff cost like this, you think to yourself, man, that's just admin. That's my charity money being eaten up by some guy's salary or something like that. That's not how it works in the church. There, there is an admin component to that. But the vast majority of that um, money that is spent on staff costs is actually a ministry expense. So it, it pays for salaries like myself and Sajid and um, uh, Matt and Burton um, who are counseling preparing for preachers and uh, leading in situations. And that's, um, so a portion of that is ministry, a portion of that is apostolic, a portion of that would be evangelistic or whatever it is. And so we are not, our admin portion of that pie is actually really quite small because we want the money that comes in to serve the kingdom of God and to see it advance. And I hope that makes sense. Next slide. Yeah, it's just some of the places where we sow. And I was thinking about the slide this morning as I was taking my shower thinking, actually, after 10 years of, I know, one of the things I think about when I shower, right? I think about pie graphs when I'm showering. But um, when we leave here in 10 years' time, or whatever it is, when God takes you from this place, that we've been able to sow that amount of money um, every year, year after year after year, that has supported these different ministries around the world. That'll be something so tangible that I'll be grateful that we've been able to do. And there are there are substantial amounts of money and, and a, an incredible variety. And every one of those things are ministries that we are involved with. We don't just send the money. We have relationships, real relationships with those people. We know that the money is going and being used for what it's been sown in for. We've invested uh, time and effort into making sure that that's the case. And so from Zimbabwe to Sri Lanka to South Africa, Pakistan, and so on and so forth, we pay the salaries of, I think there's like 12 pastors around the world or we contribute to their salaries. And, um, and there's these ministries that are continuing because we are faithful in our giving here. And the next slide is where we give apostolically, which is um, we give to um, two apostolic um, s 
Spears, one is Extend, which is led by Mike, and one is Genesis, which is led by Chris. Also, sow into church planting, and um, next season we're continuing to sow into the church plant in Russell Kamer, and even where they're able to support themselves for a season, we want to support them that they can build up reserves so they'll be able to get through their, their seasons as well. And then also the apostolic travel that we engage in, we sow into as well. So all of my travel or any of our staff travel into the nations comes out of that um, 8% of our giving there as well. Last slide. And this, that is um, our flow. Those worms, those sour worms are our income flows of the last few years. And you can see they do go up and down a little bit. Um, and you'll see what happens over the summer is we hit um, June and it goes down and then kind of hits this line. Now, it's, 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 that is still incredibly generous, and um, God is the one that provides, and if we are most concerned about it, but I know what happens because it happens to us as well. Summer comes and many people travel, and what happens is, and maybe people forget to bring their, their, what God has called them to bring financially, and uh, we survive. Obviously, God is our provider, not you. But what it means is that because income dips over the summer, we end up starting September when we really want to be launching into what God has for us. Let's go to the next slide, please. Um, without, um, on, on the back foot financially, and we, we just don't want to be in that place. And so our invitation to you is just to continue as you have been. And so this is not equal to, I'm not calling you to give more, honestly, um, unless you need to give more, in which case you should. What I'm saying to you is I'm calling you to continue to partner with us in this work that God has called you to do, even over the summer now. That is how we, if we go to the next slide, work as a church in ensuring that we walk together in financial freedom. The question is now, what about you and your family and your business? How do you walk in the financial freedom that God wants for you? The problem is that when we have a dysfunctional relationship with money, and we know we're going to have dysfunctional relationships with people, where it's actually, instead of being healthy, it's unhealthy, we can have that same relationship with money, and it causes us to feel trapped and stressed, and that leads to problems in our health, it can lead to problems in our relationships, and to problems in, um, in our service of God as well. Before I dive into this, though, I want to I declare something here, that this is a guilt-free zone. I don't want anybody to walk out of here today going, man, I feel so guilty about the fact that I, whatever it is in your mind, where you feel like you might have missed the mark. It says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 that it's the freedom that Christ set us free. And Jesus spoke about money more than anybody else, but he never spoke about it in a way that left people feeling like they were trapped or caught up in something. And God, one of the big things that he guards against is us jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Don't jump from licentiousness into legalism. Don't jump from being caught in the trap of death or enslaved by greed and jump straight into the place where you are you feel like you're compelled to give and you live under this legalistic obligation in terms of how we give. I was actually watching some videos of tele-evangelists and how they appeal for money just to get some tips for today. I'm only joking. Get some water. And um, I, was, uh, um, I was watching this thing by um, John Oliver. Have you ever seen any of his stuff? It's like a Saturday night thing. And I would have, it was, it's incredibly funny, deeply irreverent. And I would have played some of it for you, but his language is... Um, is not sanctified at all, if you've ever listened to his stuff. But he's kind of going on, these guys are making their appeals, and he's tearing their thing apart, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, some of the stuff that goes on in the name of God is just abhorrent. And actually, the thing is, even though there was one part of me that was laughing, there was another part of me that's weeping inside. That 
this is actually happening in the name of Jesus. And the problem with the prosperity gospel, and if you're a prosperity gospel person, I'm telling you what the problem with the gospel is now, don't get offended with me, is that it tells us that God wants us to be rich. That's the point of the gospel, is that God wants us to be rich. Actually, God wants us to be reconciled to Him. He wants us to be set free from our sin. And He wants us to be liberated for a love of anything that, that is above our love for God. And uh, He wants us not to be in the position, or He wants us to be in a position that Paul talks about when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And the first three verses, or the first six to nine of those verses, He wants us to be in that place of contentment and he doesn't want us to be in this place of bondage. So let's read this text together. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 10, he says, For godliness with contentment is great gain. For we, he's talking about money here, which is the obvious context of this passage. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And here's the warning. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pains. And so whenever we teach about money, whenever we present a biblical teaching on money, it must be with the motivation of helping people move away from feeling overwhelmed by their finances or being enslaved to debt or feeling like they're on this treadmill running after the more, the more, the more. I've got the car that I want. Now I'm going to chase for that car. I've got the house that I always dreamed of. Now, I'm, I, now I need more. I think it was, uh, I don't know who was asked, um, how much is, a wealthy, wealthy man was asked, how much is enough? And he goes, a little more. And that's the problem with greed is it always leaves us wanting more. And I, I read a book recently with a guy who spoke about the fact that actually we need to, beyond our, soul, our reconciliation with God, there's a second reconciliation that takes place. Now, the second one has got nothing to do with our salvation in terms of us being saved and right relationship with God, but it has to do with us living in our salvation and walking in freedom. And he spoke about the fact that the, that, um, the second sol- uh, reconciliation is a financial reconciliation where we set free from the bondages and the ties that money has over us or may have had over us. And he says this, a, fan- a financial reconciliation in which the power of God breaks the power of money in your life. His love cleanses your shame and guilt about your financial state, and the Holy Spirit fills you with the power to move ahead with all new financial practices. And I want this tea today to be so practical, and so for the next 20 minutes, that's what I'm going to be talking about, is how do we practically live this way. In order to be financially reconciled, like being spiritually reconciled, there's some things we have to believe. Because it doesn't matter if you, and I mean truly believe, not just give lip service to it, you say Jesus is my Lord, but he hasn't, isn't actually your Lord, you're not saved. And you, if you say these things about money but don't live them out, then we're never going to walk into freedom as well. Number one is believing that all I have comes from God. And I was uh, saying to Linda the other day that um, you know, so many things that seem like common sense, so obvious, are not common sense anymore and not obvious. Eh? Like, like um, when you say to somebody... born a girl, you're a girl, and if you're born a boy, you're a boy. I mean, nobody ever argued that for, for millennia. No one's ever even questioned that thing. When you, you go to the doctor and you, you ask this question, is it a boy or a girl? When somebody's pregnant, you say, do you know what the gender is? And you're actually able to answer. You don't answer, yeah, I'm not actually sure. We're going to give them a bit of time and let them, we'll find out when they, I don't know, 
dad, you bought a Ford Tuna and then we're going to buy it with gender day off. That's just like, what happened to common sense? You pull down the pants? Oh, I mean, you know what I mean. Hopefully you don't do that when, you know, you know what I'm saying. But there's a lack of common sense when it comes to money as well. And every Christian, I think, automatically will say, of course, yes, everything that I have comes from God. But do we actually live the way, um, as if he has provided everything that we have? Or do we think, actually, you know what, it's a, it's a strength of my hands or my steely resolve or my incredibly astute understanding of things that has enabled me to accumulate everything that I have. And if we do believe that God has provided everything, if we do, if we, we believe he's provided for our education that we have, for the job that we have, for the roof over our head and, and the money you're putting away into your pension or whatever it is, what, whatever you have, if you believe God is the one that has provided, why are we anxious and worried about what's to come and what we don't have? And um, I, um, I love this scripture in uh, 1 Corinthians 29 verse 14. David speaking, he says, But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things have come from you, and from, and of your own have we given you. Okay, that's a bit complicated English there. What basically saying is, I've got nothing that you didn't give me first, and I'm not giving you anything that didn't first come from your hands. David understood people, and he understood God better than most. And I've told you guys this story before about this couple that were part of our church back in South Africa. They had saved their whole life, and... Uh, now, they've been retired for a couple of years. The husband gets, the phone rings, he goes into the, the corridor to take up the phone, and his wife hears thud on the floor. He goes to, and he's fallen unconscious onto the floor, he's fainted, and the phone's hanging there like this, and so he picks up the phone and he begins to talk to the person that's on the other side, and um, I'm sure she tells her husband as well, and uh, she, um, it turns out that all of their life investments had been lost. There's somebody from the company that say that had been embezzled or whatever it was. There was no way of recovering. The money has gone. A lifetime of saving. And they got onto their knees once he recovered from his fainting. And uh, they prayed. And God gave them a word. And miraculously, and not without works on their part, but miraculously within two years, God restored all that they had saved in all of the years of their life up to that point. And he's the provider for us when we're 20 when we don't think we need a lot and we don't mind where we live. He's a provider for us when we're 40, when we had our kind of earning um, zenith, you know. And he's a provider for us when we're 60 and he's a provider for us when we're 80, when no one wants to employ us at all because it takes us 10 minutes just to get to our desk, whatever it is. So he is the one. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 to 18, it says this, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Number one, we need to believe that everything we have comes from God. Number two, we need to joyfully live within God's current provision. We have this temptation, don't we, to look over the fence and go, man, that would be nice. We kind of go, well, if I could just have that kind of a car, or if I could just have this kind of a house, or if I could just have that bit of jewelry, or if I could, I don't know, whatever it is that we, we uh, if I could get rid of my Samsung and finally get an iPhone. That must be something that a lot of people wrestle with. I, I, luckily, I live in that green grass already. I've never looked over at the Samsung. But, um, but you can probably remember, as I do, times where you had a whole lot less than you have right now. And I can remember when Linda and I first got married, we lived in a, in a in not the greatest area in the world, in a rent-controlled flat. And uh, the flat, the apartment itself was nice. It was a one-bedroom place. It didn't have a single cupboard in it. We had a street light right outside our window, 
turn our lights off at night and nothing would change. The, the, the street light would just shine blaring in there. And I threatened to shimmy up that pole and smash that globe, but I never got around to it. We had a prostitute that would come through at 3 in the morning and shout beside our, us, us below our house. And we were right opposite a petrol station. They would come and fill in the petrol houses at, at the middle of the night and take those big lids and turn them over. And we had a washing machine that um, was automatic washing machine, but the door would leak. So one of us would have to sit with our foot against the door the whole cycle. Otherwise, it would leak and fill our house. Um, our bed brought us together in marriage because we sunk in the middle like this. It was... There was so much wrong with this place. It was like we had we had everyone secondhand junk. That's how we built our lives. We had I was an article clerk and Linda was was um, doing a psycholo- psychology internship. We earned no money. We had nothing, and we were I tell you it was some of the happiest years of our lives. And there's this there's this thing that we think that we there's a, there's the number where you have to be happy. If, if I could have that, but actually whatever season God has you and He makes a provision. I've said to people many times. Don't worry about figuring out if you can afford to have kids. You can't. But it's kind of like this, you know, like some governments give you subsidies if you have children. I honestly believe there's like a divine subsidy if you have children. It's like God makes provision for what we need in the season we're in, and we can live in that season. It's a, it's a thing we need to find faith for and live in. We did make one or two mistakes. I drove a, a really bad, bad um, golf when I was young. Started working with this thing, and every now and again, the, the clutch cable would pull right through the wall, and then my because it, it was it would snap like this, and I'd have no clutch. And I used to drive all the way home and then get into second gear and change and drive like that. So I, it was this car that I'd eyed, and I um, I was a finance guy, so I figured out a plan. I started with a massive balloon payment and a this and a residual, and I mean I was paying nothing on this car every month, but it was the car was never worth more than I owed for it. It was a terrible situation. And we allowed ourselves to get into debt with it. And we, what happened was we started to, um, to live a little bit beyond our means. Just, just this little thing here. It took us, um, I eventually became a partner in the firm I was working at, I think seven years later. That's how long it took us before I finally paid off our debt. The debt that took us a couple of years to accumulate takes me years and years to get out from under. And um, when we go to God and uh, we, uh, we need a with an attitude of contentment. I love what Paul says in writing to Timothy there, and also in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not what rugby players should be putting on their arms so they can run through the other guy that's really strong or the astronaut that's going to space. He's talking about I can have much and I can have little. I can be content if I have a fat bank account or if I have a small bank account. It's contentment that God is calling us to. Bill Hybel says you will only know true financial peace when you learn to live joyfully beneath God's provision in every season of your life. And the problem is when we don't, you need to just follow me, Stephen. If you don't do that, you um, just go two slides ahead. Oh, no, sorry, you're not. You're right. See, that's me. Sorry, Stephen, you're right. Uh, twice I've been wrong now. Holy moly, we're on a roll here, people. But I'm not wrong about this. What happens is if we, we get to the place where we're actually saying to God, hey, you've missed it. This provision that you've made for me is not enough, so I'm going to go see my bank manager and get a really big fat credit card, and I'm going to use this to supplement the income that you should be giving me. God says he will provide for our needs. And the minute we start getting into debt, and I'm not talking about 
raising a bond to buy a home, or you've got an asset secured against it, or finance for a car. I'm talking about those evil little square things that can take hold of us. Uh, the personal loans that you get phoned about all the time here in Dubai. Yes, it's 150000 you You don't even need to pay it back for the first few years. It's us saying to God, you know what, God? Your provision is not enough. I need more. And, uh, and God wants us to be free of that. And if you have gotten to the place of debt, if you are every month fighting this debt monster that's gripped you, imagine the place of freedom that you'll be in to just have one day where you're not worried about that debt. You're not worried about that money. And I want to encourage you to take the first step. Come and see one of the leaders in the church and say, I've got myself into trouble. I need somebody to help me walk diligently into a place of freedom again so that I'm not trapped in that place. I've been living, trying to live above God's provision in my season. I want to learn how to live in His provision because I believe I can. Can you do that? Thirdly, is I want to honor God. I believe I honor God by giving the first tenth of all my earnings um, to His purposes in the world. Now, some people ask the question, and if they don't ask it, they're thinking, do I have to tithe? And I want to say, if you're asking, do I have to tithe to earn or keep my salvation? No! Are you bonkers? I mean, who's stupid enough to think we can buy our way into heaven? That is not the case. You don't tithe to earn salvation or keep salvation. You don't tithe to earn God's love. God does not need our money. He's not sitting in heaven counting dollars and dirhams and yen and pounds. That's not going to make it into heaven. It's, it's not, it's, that is not, when we talk about money, what we're actually talking about is heart. We're not talking about the money itself. Do I have to tithe in order to get these um, preachers off my back that keep kind of bringing me under, making me feel like I've got shame on me or manipulating me in order to give? I want to say, it's not going to take it away. If you're not free, you're not free. And you don't have to tithe for that either. So why, what does the Bible teach about giving and money? Well, first of all, it teaches that giving is good for the soul. Bottom line. I love that um, talk that's gone viral on the internet by Chris Pratt. Have you seen it? His uh, award speech. We talked about when you need to go do a number two at somebody else's house. You not seen that one? And he also speaks about some deeply spiritual things as well. And um, if you're wondering about the answer to that question, you come speak to me afterwards. I'll tell you as well privately. The number two at that guest house. Anyway, he talks about the fact he says, you have a soul, take care of it. And then he says, pray, it's good for your soul. And I want to say, giving is good for the soul. Giving is not just good for us, it's good for the community that we are part of. It's good for the kingdom, and it's good for the advancement of the gospel. The tithing was something that was a part of the law, and we are no longer under the law. Under the law, they had to give three tithes, um, with one, one 10% and 10% that took place every year, and one 10% that took place every three years. So effectively, they tithed 23% of their income. And... Uh, we are not under the law. We're not under an obligation. They were, they were obligated to bring it. They were breaking the law if they didn't bring their tithes. We are not under that law. We're under a new covenant with God. And what the thing is, though, about the new covenant is the, is the ceiling of the old covenant becomes the floor of the new covenant. In every way, the way that we live excels the way that Israel should have lived under the old covenant. So when God says, when Jesus is teaching about murder, he doesn't say you should not murder each other, which obviously we shouldn't, and it's really helpful, especially in the church, because we're not kind of going around killing each other. But he says, but if you're angry or hate your brother, it's the same as murder. And so what was the ceiling has become the floor. Actually, I'm not even going to carry an offense against somebody. That's why we break bread together. We shouldn't, we shouldn't go days or weeks without dealing with those things with each other. And it's not okay for you to go, well, Rob, I haven't committed the big A. You know, I haven't 
commit adultery with anybody. But Jesus says we're not even to look lustfully at a woman. You see, the, 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 floor, the ceiling becomes the floor, and the new covenant life is something that we live that's way beyond that. And it's a similar thing when it comes to our finances as well. The, it's not about asking, look, what is the minimum I can get away with? It's not saying, look, it's 3%. Is that it? Okay. And is that pre-tax or post-tax? And can I take off my medical bills? We just, we, we're messing around. We, we, we're thinking law, thinking again. Actually, the new covenant life is to live large. And I do believe that tithing, and I'll explain this to you in a second, is a part of living that large life of faith that God has called us to. I have three convictions about tithing. Number one is that it's a biblical idea. It's in, the, it's in the scriptures. It wasn't a man-made thing. It's not our idea. It's God's idea. He, it's in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and it's in a lot less, I'll tell you that, in the New Testament. It's only mentioned once, actually, in the New Testament. <coughs> but it's a Bible idea. It started with God. Number two, it's a Bible, a biblical principle. Before it was codified in the law, Abraham gave 10%. He meets this high priest, this mysterious Lone Ranger dude called Melchizedek, and uh, he's just suddenly he had hit, hit the kind of his like this windfall of cash he had from um, uh, from a battle he had been in, and it says he gave ten percent of everything he had to Melchizedek. That was his tithe. Then his grandson Jacob enters into a covenant with God. Remember, this is hundreds of years and a whole exile um, away from um, the law. And uh, Jacob has a covenant with God, and in Genesis twenty-eight, I think it is, he says something extraordinary. He says, "Of everything you give me." I will give you 10%. I don't even know who he gave it to. I mean, there were sort of priests that were around at that time. I think there were men like Melchizedek that kind of represented the priesthood and they gave unto that thing. So it's a biblical principle, which is the 10%. Why 10%? I don't know. I don't, I honestly, I don't know. But I do see it in Scripture, and I think the 10% matters. And then thirdly, it's a biblical vehicle or tool. Under the Old Covenant and the law, the Levites, everyone was given land. So imagine like we were... We were giving an inheritance here in Dubai, and God was giving it up between us. And he said, okay, Matt and Hannah, you are getting um, two villas in the lakes. That's going to be yours. You're going to live in one, and you're going to rent one out. And uh, Mike and Shemaine, we're going to give you two villas <coughs> on the palm. And come on. And, uh, and Jim and Gabby, you're getting two villas in Maiden South. <laughs> and you're going to live in one, and you rent one out. And Rob, you're getting nothing. Well, that's not fair. No, no. Your job is not to work the fields. Your job as a Levite is to minister to altar God and to do that work. And so what happened was 10% of your income flowed, flowed to, from the Israelites to the Levites who didn't receive an inheritance so they could live off it. And the same principle, I believe, the same idea carried through into the New Testament. And Paul is so clear about this. There's no embarrassment. And I'm not talking about my salary because you don't pay it. God pays me. God looks after me. But I want to be able to talk about it without any... Um, like I've talked to my kids about sex without any blushing. He says in 175 verse 17 18, the elders who direct affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading the grain. And just to be clear, though, he's not talking actually about ox here. The worker deserves his wages. And I think in the New Testament, the tithe is a vehicle to make sure that those who minister full-time, not just me as the pastor or one of the pastors and not, but all of the staff who work in the church are able to be looked after. I could be in the marketplace. I'm not. I devote my time to this task. It's a simple equation. Therefore, I should be able to earn enough money to be able to look after my family. 
And I'm so convinced about this that for 25 years, I think from, if not the first month, almost the first month I started working, I've been tithing all that time. I've never missed a month. And some people say, Rob, you're crazy. I mean, imagine 10% of your income. I could have probably bought two houses. I only wish that I'd have got to point four, which is I saved the 10% as well through all that time. And I'll push that button in a second. But the reason I'm a financial idiot is because I want to live free of the love of money. The reason why I um, express financial idiocy, as the world would say, is because I want to regularly respond to God in a tangible way. It's easy to say we love God. It's that saying, well, put your money where your mouth is. It's like, like I'm reminding myself that I'm not just going through the motions. It's, I'm going to, actually, Lord, this is, I've got some ideas of what I can do with this stuff, but I actually, I'm going to sow into it. I'm an idiot because I want to participate in seeing the extraordinary gospel reach the ends of the earth. I don't know what's all of what's taken place with my 10% over 25 years, but I'm convinced that the gospel has gone to nations of the earth because of what I've sown into it. And I'm this kind of idiot because I want to I want to stay in God's economy. I don't want to be caught up in an economy that, this earth that goes up and down like this. And so I need to stay faith fit. It doesn't take too many brains to know that if you're trying to go from A to B, you've got a financial goal, so maybe it's to pay off your house to go from A to B, that it's easy for you to easier for you to do this with 100% of your income. If you're paying off your house, it's easier to pay it off if you keep 100% of your income. But God's calling us to live not just to be. He wants to bring us into life that takes us to see. And unless we participate in a faith venture with God of giving and receiving, we're only going to ever live to the be. And I'm not talking about money, friends. I could have had a lot more money, maybe, maybe, if I'd kept my tithe back. I could have put that money in a bank account, and maybe I would have bigger bank account than I have right now. And I'm not talking about financial return. I'm talking about this, an invitation to a life that is ordered by contentment, to a life that is marked by radical kingdom advancement, and a life that reveals the supernatural favor and blessing of God. I think I've told you the story before, you know, about that lady that literally ministering to her, and she phones us one day and says, I've got a set of drums. I want you to them if you want them. And Matthew had just started drumming, so he was, I don't know, he was nine or something like that. Imagine a nine-year-old getting a beautiful Yamaha set of drums, fills in cymbals, and every, I mean, everything, the stands, the, the little thing that counts the beats, 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 whatever it is. And uh, so Renna picked it up, and we set it up in the, in the spare room in the house for him. And as we were walking out the room, I said to Matthew, I was in ministry, I said to him, I, uh, boy, I want you to know how good God is. I said, even if I was still working for Deloitte, even if I was making the money I was making, I would never have thought you would get it back. It's too extravagant. I said, this is God. It's the extravagance of God that when we participate with Him, when we get into Him, He takes us not just to be, He takes us to see as well. And I'm going to need a jumpy next week, so sit deep. Number four is, I can set aside a portion of my earnings into a savings account for emergency giving opportunities in my later years. I, let me just say this. You can live of 90, you can live of 80. If God's plan is for us to save, if that's in his, in his will for us, then that ceiling of provision that he makes for us, he can make enough that we can save and live in it. My experience has been is that I have, when I haven't saved, it's because I've not done well with my finances, not stewarded my finances, not because there's not been enough there. And God does this. God is in my future. I'm not worried about not worried about an emergency taking place and I won't have the money for it because I've got access to God. I know that. 
But part of what God wants me to do is to steward well. So when those things come up, is that I have the ability to be able to step in and deal with it. If my son or my daughter needs medical treatment, if I have made some provisions and there is an anxiety about it, if suddenly our car breaks down and I've got to repair it, then provision has been made to be able to do that. I believe God is part of God's stewardship for our life. Remember that scripture in Deuteronomy I read that says he gives us the ability to create wealth. That's not, that's not the flow of income. That's, that's wealth is something we accumulate. God actually does want us to accumulate some wealth, some saving, so that we can, when we face those situations, be able to step through them. Lastly, and I want to finish with this. I love this one. I think, honestly, if everything I set, all this other set us up for this one. And that's why it's so good that we finish here today. I will literally say with an open ear towards heaven, eager to respond to any whisper from God regarding my resources. So, um, Marissa and Damien Therese come from a church in Victoria called 3 ti And uh, they've got a, a leader in that church, a lady named Glory, who's a friend of Mike and I's, mine and Mike's. And um, Glory has got some, he's an incredibly gifted man. He's got some, um, he's got his own issues like everybody does. Be a little bit competitive at golf. You can mock you a little bit when you're losing and things like that. But um, the one thing that no one ever accused Gloria of is not being generous. And so we're having lunch with him in, in Pretoria, and um, this, this lady comes to serve us. And uh, I just we actually just finished with um, Damien, and he had left, and then Gloria had come. And, and um, anyway, this, this lady was just there was just something about her that was just special. There was just something different about her. Um, a young black South African girl, um, not because pretty or anything like that, just, just in her heart. And she comes to us and she goes, and I say that because you might be thinking, oh, she's a hottie and that's why. And she, so he, um, so she, she was suddenly wasn't on the order and, and, and Lori goes, oh, fine, I'll just have the same thing for you. Thank you. And she goes, no, 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 please, what about we doing this and we do this and we do this and we can make plan. I know that you want that. Just, just get it to me. And so she, and she's like, well, let's do that. And he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And so anyway, she comes and, and I don't really say, clearly you must have just known a few things, but you know. And then when I saw her, nearly start to cry. And she got to tell us, oh, she's been fairly decent. And um, then the manager comes to us and he goes, Sister Sir, I just want to check um, that my wages didn't make a mistake. Is that North Zero supposed to be there on this amount? And he had left with something like a 300% tip. And uh, she was just broken. And this is not random acts of kindness. I, there's nothing wrong with random acts of kindness, but I believe that God wants to call us into a place of revelation acts of kindness where he speaks and we respond in situations that our wallet's actually got some extra money and it's continually that our heart's got some extra space and it's a no matter what goes on lord i'm listening what are you doing right now i promise you that i know that he goes there often and some of the things yeah i don't go there she's gonna know that this man is a pastor and she's gonna wonder what is it that stirred him to act in this way and we don't know what she was going through it's it's probable that she needed that money or that encouragement or that love more than at any other time because that's when God speaks. I think when we figure out how to give with our money, it opens us up to live the kind of generous, extravagant lives with our lives that God wants us to live so that our time becomes something we're able to give, that our, that our compassion is something that we're able to give, that, our, um, that we, we sow of our, of our treasures Yes, but also of our talents and also of our time. And we actually change the world that God's called us to live in. And that's why it's not so much an issue of money. It's an issue of the heart. Do we live in a place? Do 
be able to respond to what God has for us. There's a video that I want to play now. You guys will get ready so we can uh, play in a sec. And uh, we're going to just play this and then I'll, I'll land some music later. mind just closing out for a minute. I want to pray over us in this church. Father, would you forgive us, Lord God, where we have um, misunderstood when you talk about money, Lord God. Would you help us to live in that place, Lord God, where we are utterly free from the love of money that we live in the kind of contentment that you've called us to. It is so countercultural, so contrary to the world that we live in, in many ways so utterly contrary to this city here. And yet, Lord, that's maybe why you've planted it here. I pray for those of us that have allowed ourselves to get into debt and to drift into the kind of bondage that, that debt brings. I pray that you forgive us for not living within the means that you provided, Lord God, and that you would help us to take the steps necessary from this day to get ourselves free of that. I pray, Lord God, that you forgive us where we've stopped in this divine exchange of giving and receiving with you, Lord God. I think of Paul's exhortation as he commended the church in Philippi for their giving, and he says that my God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, that as we walk and, and partner with you, that we would know that we are provided for, Lord God. I pray, Father, that you would forgive us 
and we have allowed ourselves to get into this spinning wheel, Lord God, and chase and chase and chase and chase more money, more cars, more houses, more this, more that, when it's not what you've called us to, Lord God. I pray that we would find grace in you, Lord God, to step off, look around, say, Lord, what do you want me to do? I pray that we would go into those offices and that, Father, we would carry a different spirit, a spirit of contentment. We not be driven by money. Let money not be the goal. Let our passion for your kingdom to make a difference in this world be what drives us, Lord God. Father, I pray for those that are in financial trouble right now, that have been robbed and stolen from, that, Lord, because of that, have felt like they needed to close their hands and no longer give. I want to pray, Father, that you would give them space in their hearts that they might open their hands again and, and, and uh, release something of a breakthrough over their lives, Lord God. I pray, Father, we would, be a, we would continue to be a generous people. And I pray that you would take us into realms of generosity that we've not known about before. I pray that for me, Lord God, personally. I pray that I would be provoked by the kind of men and women that I hang around with, Lord God, to live with the kind of generosity that we see in you. And I pray that for my brothers and my sisters here. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are our provider. There is no doubt about that at all in our hearts. And we pray that there's something of a, an adjustment and a reordering that takes place in our hearts, a kind of spiritual chiropractic moment, Lord God, where we've got out of shape, that, that right now, in the name of Jesus, you adjust us. But I pray that offenses and misunderstandings and and hurts with regards to finances be broken in Jesus' name. I pray that where our moms and dads or our bosses have said things about generosity or about the church and about giving, I break it off in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Heavenly Father, we live free, that it is for freedom Christ has set us free, and so we live free, Lord God, not under the kind of licentious thing of, of, of giving nothing, nor under the legalistic thing of giving under compulsion. But we live in this place of joyful partnership with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I pray that we would continue, Lord Jesus, in this church until Jesus returns one day to be known for our generosity. So, Lord God, into the nations. And would you multiply, Lord God, so that we as a church can sow not just 30%, but 40% and 50% out. That, uh, Father, more and more we would live out that base church reality that you've called us to have much to release to those that have need of much, Lord God. Pray over your sons and your daughters now. I pray your, your um, the kind of the, the sprinkling of heaven, Lord God, the, the rain of heaven fall upon us. I pray that we leave you feeling free and liberated and excited because we serve a God that wants our hearts and wants all of us. And I pray that we be a people that light shines on the hill like that picture we just saw. We are people that are generous and giving. In Jesus' glorious and wonderful name, I pray this. Amen.